Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Patrick Curtis, your host and chief monkey, and this is the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Join me as I talk to some of the community's most successful and inspirational members to gain valuable insight into different career paths and life in general. Let's get to it. In this episode, Jamie Goodfriend, head of Point 72's investment professional development and director of the Point 72 Academy, shares her winding path through Wall Street. From starting in M&A when she graduated from Michigan in 1997 to her jump to equity research a few years later, we learned the main reason she decided to pursue a career in finance and how she eventually ended up as a hedge fund analyst working for some of the most successful funds in the world, including Baliesny and Citadel. Find out why after three years on the buy side, she decided to take a massive pay cut and give it all up to become a professor at the University of Illinois and what drew her to Point 72. Finally, in the last part of the pod, we discuss the Point 72 Academy, what they look for in undergraduate hires and young professionals, the future of the industry, as well as the odds of actually breaking in. Enjoy. All right, Jamie, thanks so much for joining the Wall Street Oasis podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It'd be great if you could just give the listeners a short summary of your bio. Sure. Uh, I graduated from uh, university, I guess at this point, kind of a long time ago, um, and started my career in investment banking and mergers and acquisitions and moved to the sell side uh, research uh, a couple of years later. And then I, I kind of found over time, I was looking to do what my clients were doing on the buy side. So I, I hopped over to the buy side and covered industrial stocks at a couple of multi-manager hedge funds for a few years. Uh, ultimately, though, I, I always found that for me, my passion was truly in teaching. And so in 2007, I left uh, the hedge fund space to uh, become a university professor where I taught for seven years and developed some programs for a couple of different universities. Uh, it was that time I, I figured out um, you know, program management, figuring out that talent truly can be recruited for Wall Street anywhere, led me to Point 72, where I developed Point 72 Academy. Very cool. So a lot to unpack. It's actually very interesting background. And I think uh, the listeners will, will find some of your transitions and decisions, hopefully, enlightening. So let's start all the way back at undergrad, though. And you said it's a long time ago, similar to when I went to school, but <laughs> so you don't have any grades. I have all the grades to, to prove it, but um, tell me a little bit I about it. <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> tell me a little bit about just, it, you know, when you're, when you're at Michigan, was there like, oh, I know I want to be in finance or was it something that you kind of stumbled into? And, you know, you said you did M&A right out of school. So just um, what, what kind of attracted you to that? I think that's a really important point is that I didn't know it was what I wanted to do. I actually thought that I wanted to work with people. I stumbled through a few different concentrations uh, in the liberal arts side of the University of Michigan. I did not go to business school. And I 
found for financial reasons, a sudden urge to make money. And I think it was that driver that led me to finance in the first place, which I, I think it's super important to talk about because, you know, if you're in this business to make money, it's probably not the right reason to be in the business, which is ultimately why I left. But I, I can tell you that, you know, with certainty, it was really for financial reasons. I realized that I, I wanted to be uh, in a position where I could afford to support, you know, myself and my future family. Were you, were you kind of leaning on your parents? I know for me, I was a similar thing where I was like, I don't want my parents to have to pay any more tuition or like do anything. So I was like, I need to go do you know, what makes decent money. And everyone's like, go to banking. I'm like, what's banking? Was that somewhere kind of your thought process? And then you just kind of started going, like, when did that happen? Junior year, sophomore, do you remember? Well, that's exactly right. I, I think that it was in my junior year when I kind of hit that that panic button and, and look back then there was no internship where you could learn this stuff, right? So I quickly just figured out what what could make money for a living without really understanding what I was getting into. And I, and I think that was an important driver for me to to learn more about how to educate the future investors in the world was because I felt like there was a lot of information I was supposed to learn on my own. And it was very difficult for me to figure out you know, what it was. So what was banking? What was investing? And, you know, I, I think that it would have been really helpful for me to have better education around that before I jumped right into it. But did you, I mean, when you were kind of by junior year, you had that panic button, who told you even about investment banking? How did you even stumble on it? I accidentally found it in our career office uh, back then. If you can picture back then, uh, you know, instead of having internet links, to apply to, um, really dating myself and perhaps you too, uh, you know, you had these manila envelopes uh, that you literally dropped your resume into and you could just, you know, submit, you know, submit them without a lot of extra cover letter work. And I just, you know, I, I had had a, a fairly well-rounded education in undergrad because I wanted to just learn how to think. And it was really my concentration in that that led me to, to decide, you know, if I could try to find through employers and through descriptions of, of, of companies, and what they did, uh, a role that would help me continue to, to learn. Do you remember and I think that about, was where. Sorry, do you, do you remember anything about the interview process back then? Like, was it really rigorous or was it more like fit-based stuff? Yeah, I remember. Um, so I didn't go to business school. And so uh, certainly back then, the interview processes for liberal arts majors at investment banks and, and consulting firms and whatnot were, were a little bit more on the critical thinking side and problem-solving side than they were on the technical side, because that would have just been us staring at each other for 30 minutes. And, and actually that happened. I'm happy to talk about this. That happened one day to me for sure. And, and that's a, a lesson I never forgot and try to pass on to my students now. Um, happened to me at, so a, really, at a Goldman interview. Same thing. They were like, they didn't care that it was, or I've been told, you're not going to be asked any technical questions. You're a liberal arts man. I said, okay. They get in there and they're like, walk me through a DCF. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> that bad. happened to yeah, like it's, I mean, the most embarrassing stories I have are about all the times I screwed up uh, interview questions where people kind of said, "Did you could you repeat that answer?" Just because it's like they wanted to share it with their friends later because they said, "You got it, you got it, you can't believe what I just heard uh, in terms of interview answers." And I was deathly afraid it was going to show up on the internet as like a what not to do, uh, essentially on your website. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we didn't exist then. We didn't exist then. Right. Yet, but, <laughs> Thankfully. So, so tell me a little bit about just. So you kind of, you dropped your resume, you started doing the interviews and then was it just serendipitous? Like, you know, late nineties, it's like, why not internet? Why not, you know, go move to Silicon Valley? Like a lot of people. I was, it was just before that, before um, to okay. be honest with you. And I did choose. Yeah. So I, I started in 1997 um, and the internet, it was just 99. starting when, and I, actually, yeah. And, and I actually did M&A in San Francisco. Um, so I did have the experience of meeting people who I'm in touch with today, 
who are still out there in, in Silicon Valley. And uh, for me, that wasn't the driver of my next job was actually more geographical than it was to, to stay out there. So um, I found the startup community to be incredibly interesting and I love the entrepreneurial spirit of it. Uh, and I found myself coming back to it later in my life, but that wasn't the right time. Got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about what it was like M&A back, back in the late nineties. Was it the hundred hour weeks? Like uh, a lot of the kids are, I mean, work from home has been really, really hard for the analysts. A lot of them are dropping like flies after six months, just saying, this is not, this is, brutal. Tell me, was it similar back then? Yeah, I think that, you know, you're raising a really important point in that culture and community has to persist more than ever now. And I think what allowed me to sort of suffer through that period of time, uh, you know, cranking through the models and the pitch books. And then, you know, back then, if <laughs> anyone who needs to Google this, what a fax machine is, I had to fax my, pre, my, my draft to, uh, you know, to my vice president at midnight on a Saturday night. And that was completely normal. Like the whole world should be doing this uh, with a college degree, but it was true. It was, it was like that then. And I think what sustained me was uh, the community that I felt in the class. Uh, and I, I have got to imagine that the absence of that now is material. Oh yeah. It's bad. What we're seeing is really bad out there in terms of people. Like we even had an MD post, like how can we do better? <laughs> and everyone had, there was plenty, <laughs> there's plenty to say. Um, from, from the community. So, okay. So you're, you're there for a couple of years. You're working really hard. sounds like super long hours. Um, this is in San Francisco, correct? You said. Yep. And so then you're, you're making, why, why make a transition to equity research? Was it lifestyle decision? Was it what kind of drove you to go there? Because I think a lot of people think you're in banking, you're in M and A, you're in the most like, um, you know, high profile, you worried about the deals you do, you know, that type of stuff. Why my move to equity research, which is like, you know, often considered a cost center. You know, I felt incredibly lucky to be chosen for the M&A group at my firm. And I, I wanted to, to pursue M&A despite my lack of training and background because it felt to me to be the most rigorous. And I thought for the time invested, for the 100 hours a week or what have you invested, I wanted to maximize how much I could soak up of this industry. And I, I paid for it, sure. But to me, that the return was worth it because I was learning skills for the first time instead of just, you know, critical thinking frameworks. and. Um, you know, when I, when I think about banking in general and the role and the function of an investment bank, which is really the, the in-between conduit between companies and, you know, those who want to invest in, you know, capital in those companies and, and really the reallocation of capital, um, it's very transaction oriented and the, the firms are transaction oriented. So the roles for the, you know, junior talent, I find are obviously transaction oriented as well. And for, for me, I wanted an ongoing relationship with the companies that I was covering and following. Um, I wanted to study the businesses more. Um, and I wanted my activities day to day to be around, uh, you know, and the narratives of the companies, how they changed, how the market changed. And I, I don't think there's as much of that in banking. And for me, I was much more interested and engaged in that practice. You had that much introspection at 24 years old to know, like, I want to, this will make me happier or whatnot, or it really wasn't getting burned. I mean, for me, it was like, I was burnt out. <laughs> After a couple of years, <laughs> I, I, jumped, <laughs> I jumped to private equity because I was like, I can't do another year. Um, I, I, I literally couldn't do, I literally physically couldn't do another year. Um, which, so I guess my question is like, when you were making that decision in that, maybe probably the second year you were doing M&A, was it, was it really like, 
you know, why not go to the buy side then? Did you not know about hedge funds? You know, why not go to do that stuff? Why equity research first? I'm well, that's to, interesting you say that. that. Yeah, I'm trying to unpack that because like it's not a usual thing we see now. Well, I think that's the key point is now I think it's much more difficult or it's much easier, excuse me, to jump to the buy side uh, from investment banking. Back then, I think it was more difficult to get to the buy side directly, uh, particularly as somebody directly from undergraduate. Uh, without a, a longer route uh, beforehand, most people that I knew had to go back to school, for example, even to get to the to the sell side. And the private equity point you raise, I think, is interesting. Uh, you know, burning out, doing a lot of transaction work. I, I don't know. Did you? I don't know if you found that to be changing that much on the private equity side. But but for me, I, I kind of thought that would be more of the same. It's just a question of you know having a more critical eye on the transactions because you're the buyer and not the seller. I don't know if that's true. The hours were significantly less for me. But I know, I know it can be considered banking 2.0 for, for many. So like for me, it was, went from about an average of 90-ish hours a week down to about six, 55, 60. So it was a pretty dramatic lifestyle improvement. <laughs> um, so yeah, was that a consideration at all, like in the second year? Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's like, let's be honest with each other. When, I, when I'm giving you the, the adult answer, reflecting back 25 years, you know, I've summarized and digested you know, the, the incredible amount of stress and, and burnout that occurred uh, during during that time. And, and I can still think back to those days, uh, you know, late at night when I was, you know, sitting and sitting and sitting, you know, trying to work and, and reiterate on, on the same thing over and over again. For me, by the way, the other issue was that I wanted to move back uh, to be closer to my family in the Midwest at that point. Got it. So for, I, I applied actually to a private equity job and to a sell side job in Chicago, uh, which is where I'm from. And, uh, you know, had made the commitment to myself, at least, that I was going to move back there, you know, with the first job I could find that was a good opportunity. Was it a pay cut going from M&A to? No. No? Okay. Great. No. So you're there for a good run. You're doing equity research for a while, and you kind of um, then eventually get into the hedge fund world. Yep. So... Tell me about how that works, because well, I think it's a little more common. Like, were you getting your CFA then? What was the, the thought process of, you know, was the buy side still, co you, you had applied for a private equity position, you said. Was that always kind of on the horizon, like private equity markets? Yeah, I think for me, I was still learning what the landscape looked like. I, I would say I didn't really know back then what a hedge fund was at all. Um, it was a very different time, uh, you know, decades ago. There weren't as many. Um, and so I had looked at, you know, what are firms where I felt like they were longstanding firms and I could learn. I, you know, I think the theme here is where could I learn more because I was young and I, I knew I didn't really know anything, certainly coming out of a liberal arts, you know, program. And I felt like I was processing a lot and not learning as much as I wanted to uh, in some cases, too. And that was a little frustrating for the amount of hours I was putting in, especially in the second year of banking. And I, I imagine that resonates with you know, some of this oh, audience, of too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So what about did equity research? Did you? Was it a similar thing where you started feeling like the learning curve flattened out a little bit? So a couple of things happened. Um, when, I, when I got there, I was uh, covering uh, private prisons and, and garbage companies, which is, I'm sure, what everybody's dream was during the tech bubble. Um, the reason I got the job, I think, was because nobody else wanted to do it. And for me, I, I found that to be an opportunity where, you know, as I alluded to before, actually, the pay was, was pretty good, probably because nobody wanted to do it. And so they kind of had to get somebody who, who would be willing to learn the industry. And, and I did learn for, for three and a half years. I was there covering more companies, picking up water filtration, which actually was really interesting for me. Um, and then getting my CFA and, and uh, going to school, actually, at night part time to, to get my MBA. So I had no life whatsoever. 
because the extra hours that I was not spending at work, I was now spending, you know, in school or studying for the CFA exam. But you were doing an MBA at in the evenings. Mm-hmm. On top yeah, of eventually. The, like it, so was was Kellogg was the evening program like a normal thing back then? Yeah, the evening program was an alternative to the day program, and um, when I decided there was there was a pivotal point in my South Side career where I think you know you're absolutely right. I, I think I kind of learned what I wanted to, and and just realized I really longed to be the client who had the accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, with, with the South Side and with banking, what I had found combined is that there are a lot of activities where you're not accountable. You're part of a team, and that's okay. But for me, I really hungered for uh, that report card and, and sort of that, that, that tell on what I was doing and how I could get better. Um, I think the industry certainly teaches all of us uh, a little humility, no matter what we do. Um, but I was trying to think about ways where I could get to that buy side job. And so I knew my current firm wasn't going to be the right springboard for it. And I didn't want to put them in that position. So what I did is I applied for a transfer into a full-time program at Kellogg for the second year. Okay. And I was admitted to that. And they, they admitted eight people that year to, to do it out of all the applicant pool. And I was lucky enough to, to, get, that, to get that seat. So you started part-time and then you eventually moved to the full-time program. And mm-hmm. your time there, was that helpful to kind of get a better, I mean, it sounds like by that point, you kind of had an idea of buy side is where you want yeah. to go. So what was it like just the recruiting out of there for like, I know nowadays hedge funds probably just laugh if you're getting an MBA. They're like, what are you doing? Like, you don't need that. The CFA was probably less so, but was it similar to like, why are you getting the MBA? Did you, did you have that any sort no. of pushback on it or? It, a totally different time. I mean, back then, you know, that, that was almost 20 years ago. And so I, I think that the MBA at this point has a different, you know, a different, I don't want to say reputation, but, but, but it's, it's not, it doesn't have the same transitional sort of, you know, easiness to it. And, and people, people never questioned why I had gone back uh, for, for, for the one year. Um, the opportunity of the job market at that time out of, you know, MBAs was, was pretty small, uh, particularly where I went to school at Northwestern, which is really known for more strategy and marketing and what have you. And so I found myself sneaking into other schools, uh, you know, neighborhood schools, and then don't get me in trouble for this. But like, if I wanted to learn what some of these other larger uh, buy-side firms were doing, I, I might've had to sneak into a, to a different meeting at a different school to learn. And I was going to do it because uh, that's what I, I knew that was what I wanted to do. Are you, are you However, suggesting the, you were in Booth? Mm-hmm. You were sneaking into Booth? sessions right? i would never i'm i'm i know <laughs> your kellogg your I'm kellogg not. people are going to be very angry not just kidding it's 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 <laughs> well, we've heard that, that part out <laughs> well the truth is uh, i did get the offer through kellogg and and uh you know when i was hired at valley asney uh it was uh they actually had come to, to to kellogg and and so i i did it the right way in the end uh and i do recruit today uh from both schools just to you know you know be fully fair to to, to both and as you're kind of that, that whole process, um, was it, was it similar to what it is today where it was, it was a long, short type, you know, equities position, analyst, analyst position where you were expected to come, come into the interview and have a, have a stock pitch ready long, you know, a few long ideas, a few short ideas, or was it totally different back then? It, that's exactly how it was back then. Um, I had prepared several pitches. Um, I was questioned on technical skills. Uh, I had a lot of what, what you call fit, uh, you know, interviews. Um, but I always found, and I think what I like the most about when I compare 
you know, the buy side to private equity or hedge or excuse me, investment banking, you know, hedge funds have one goal and that's to make money. And, you know, your performance is your meritocracy. And I felt that the interview process was kind of the same way, which I, I really appreciated. You know, the, the, the feedback was pretty quick. And, you know, what they wanted to test was just whether you had aptitude. And I, we can speak to that in Point 72 Academy because, you know, I, I recruit obviously for, for that. Um, but lessons learned from that was, you know, I really appreciated the straightforward nature of, of that recruiting process. It was just like, how good are you at idea generation? idea generation so was it was it testing you at all back then on like mental math and doing it at that time i never received a mental math test i know many people who did and i have views on this <laughs> for the poor souls who get you, that do you like it or do you not like it i've met many smart people who can't do it um and i have you know worked with many people at firms who swear it's the only thing that that matters i enjoy it i actually think you can learn it um, I think there are some good resources out there that can teach you how to do some of it. Um, but there's probably some degree of, of talent out, you know, that, that you would need to, to do it really well. So you're graduating from, from Kellogg, you're starting your hedge fund career and mm -hmm. are you put in a specific group? I see here, basic materials. Is that like you were assigned it and you just had to learn that everything about it. And what was that like? Yeah, so I, uh, I I basically started where I left off on the sell side with business service. I'll just call it business services. So a slightly wider mandate than the you know the eighteen companies I covered uh, on the sell side. Um, and there just wasn't a lot of alpha um, you know, or return, you know, absolute return or, or idiosyncratic return in those names uh, the way that there was in in other spaces. And so I remember uh, you know Dimitri. I worked directly for Dimitri Daliasmi, and I remember he took me in his office one day and said, you know this China thing seems kind of interesting. Why don't you go figure that out? And I was like, what, what does that mean? And I found myself getting on airplanes with translators myself and going to Asia and, you know, trying to figure out what supply demand looked like for metals and mining. And before I knew it, you know, I had picked up that space uh, kind of out of, out of circum, you know, I, I, more lucky than good, I think is, is what the quote would be. But, you know, if you, if you research back in time in, in the early you know, to mid 2000s, uh, what a time it was in that in that market with the with the you know Asia super cycle, um, and so that really is where my my success began with with basic material coverage. So is that something like you're trying to uh, predict basically commodity prices and and stuff like that, or what what types of trades would you suggest to the firm? Like what what types of idea generation were you doing? Was it all like was it on the credit side, equity side, always equity? Like what were you doing day to day? I've always. Yeah, I've always been an equity analyst. So, um, you know, and this is not too dissimilar from how I think about training people at, at Point 72 Academy. I think you have to be really um, deep in your industry first and just make sure people have proper context. You know, when people deliver a pitch, you always want to make sure that you can tie it to the proper context, right? And, and, the, and the numbers have to tie to a, to a narrative. And so uh, I was always providing single stock idea generation, but it was always with the context of having the industry expertise or, you know, trying to look, trying to get to expertise. Um, so they were literally it, flying so. you to China to try and do what, like, what is that going to actually do? So you could talk to like senior leadership there at, at different firms and try to figure out like what's, what's legitimate and what's not. I, th I think that's important for the whole hedge fund industry in general is, you know, at a very young age, you're given a lot of responsibility, including a lot of, um, you know, executive meetings. And that's part of it. 
Um, but it's also being able to do the fundamental grassroots research to understand supply and demand dynamics because commodity prices trade on the U.S. dollar, you know, all around the world. Um, but supply and demand, you know, in any commodity, I think, you, you know, you would want to think about marginal consumption and marginal demand dollars. And so, or the dollars come from the marginal demand. And at the time, um, the marginal demand was coming from, from Asia as they were really pushing that demand curve. If you can, if you can picture the demand curve on a, totally get it, right. totally get it. But why are you getting on a plane? How's that going to help you figure it out? I think that's what, that's what, uh, that's what just surprises me. It's just like having you on the ground with the translator, who are they, who are they trying to, if you can share, who are they trying to get you in front of to, to get more information? It's obviously to get information, right? So to try and figure, figure out if you're, yeah, thinking. I, without giving away too much from the firm's perspective, I think you learn more by experiencing and seeing for yourself, just like what that inventory is, you know, what, what does it mean when you have piles? Uh, I'll give you another example. You have piles of container board, you know, the boxes we all receive from Amazon. Do we actually know what a pile of inventory looks like or means or feels or how dusty it is sitting there waiting to be sold until you actually go? The answer is you have to go. And, and so, you know, I think that's where resourcing is, can become very important. I worked on a paper and packaging restructuring when I was at Rothschild for two years. So I was in Mexico um, and I know very well what it looks like, but <laughs> not by choice. Um, so, okay, so you're... <laughs> You're there for um, a year and a half. Tell me why the transition. So well, uh, it was to I, Citadel, right? From it, it was you know, a year yeah. And a half I, was it uh, about two years? Yeah, about two years. So tell me, was it something where the the names you're working on there wasn't a lot of alpha initially, but it sounds like there were. It sounds like you were having success um, once they put you on the basic materials. So why move? Right. Well, I think the opportunity. Um, presented itself. So at the time, Citadel was was opening up or reopening up the Chicago office um, and restarting global equities. And uh, they were looking to rebuild from the bottom up. And so to have that opportunity to help, you know, the industrials book. And at the time, there were single, it was sort of a single manager structure in global equities where there was only one PM per sector. And, and so, you know, to really see beyond that team, um, I think was a, was a good transition point uh, for me to grow my coverage, which is something a lot of analysts really, you know, strive to do uh, as they continue to develop um, and to gain more responsibility and, and to learn, you know, from a great firm. And it's not to say that I, I didn't appreciate what I had at Belliazzi. I think, you know, I, I, you know, I, I actually really enjoyed the continued relationships I still have with that firm today. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think it was, a, it was a great opportunity for me to grow further as an analyst. Was it regional at all? So were you in New York? Um... Or where were you with uh, Baliazne for? I was in Chicago for both firms. You were still in Chicago. So it wasn't anything around region or anything like that. Um, It was more just getting more coverage. Maybe the name Citadel, maybe the pay was better. Was pay, I know for hedge funds, it's all over the place. But I assume base is relatively decent, but then the bonus can be so crazy wild. Fluctuation, it can be zero <laughs> if things go really poorly or it can be That's pretty wild <laughs> yeah or it could be um you know obviously several hundred percent above your uh, more than your salary so were you experiencing those types of paydays like i mean because oh three i'm looking when you were there oh three to oh six i think we were pretty pretty good years right um they were and i think i think that speaks to the to the meritocracy that i talked about before you know there's no if you're at a firm where you have promotional tracks, I think that can also lead to things like caps, uh, you know, no matter what. And I think that's a little bit of code for that. And, and for me, 
you know, particularly back then at, at Citadel and at Baliazni, there were no titles. And at point 72, by the way, we don't, we don't believe in titles either, sort of for the same, same reason. Um, you should really get to experience reward uh, with the team uh, if you do well. And so, uh, you know, I think that's my really roundabout way of answering your question. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Okay. So, and then you were, you were at Citadel for an, a year. And so tell me a little bit about the, the following transition, and then we'll kind of get into more of your teaching career um, and that final transition. But so you were, you were in hedge fund tradings for what, three and a half years. So like that final transition out of Citadel, was it um, something similar where it was just a great opportunity to be a PM? For me, that was, that was sort of the moment where I realized I could sort of take the risk that I wanted to, to transition my career out. And I, at that point, I'm going to, you know, this goes back to the discussion we had earlier about, you know, doing what, why do you do what you do and, you know, what drives, what drives your career, what drives your happiness, what drives your, what motivates you. And for me, uh, you know, I think the first 10 years in total, what that was, um, was about, was about money. And if I'm just honest at, at that point, I thought I had made a little bit of money. Sure. Um, or some people might say, you know, more than a little, but like <laughs> it wasn't making me happy. Yeah. And so, um, look, these jobs are really hard. They are still a lot of hours. I did, I didn't get to experience the 60 hour work weeks that you're describing, to be honest with you, uh, even in, on the buy side, because I think I'm the kind of person that just runs and runs and runs until I, you know, and sort of, I'm never satisfied with my outcome and always want to pursue the next thing, which I think made me a good analyst, but it also made me, you know, probably have a limited duration. And so after, after 10 years, I started to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And that's when I turned to teaching because I knew even on my first day of banking, I remember walking into the sunset with, with this, this guy who is still a good friend of mine. Um, and we were walking in and I just literally blurted out loud. And I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, but I'm just being honest. Like, oh my God, I just wasted a day in my life. And you probably shouldn't say that on your first day of banking, Although I bet I'm not the only one to ever say this on <laughs> first day of banking. And he said, me too. And I don't want to say his name because I'll tell you, he's still in the industry. And I said, in 10 years, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a professor. And he said, me too. And 10 years later, I was a professor or yeah. what we would call. And he's a, a still lecturer. in the industry. Yeah. <laughs> and he is, I think, yeah. Well, it's, and, tough. And, you know, it's, it's tough. You, you know, you're putting millions away, you know, by, you know, if you're in the industry for 10 years, you're at top hedge funds and you're a great analyst. You're, you're easily clearing, you know, you're, you could probably save several million dollars easily in the bank. So, you know, after tax. So, you know, you're feeling like, okay, I'm not, I don't have to chase the money anymore, but there's, it's also hard just to let go of that, um, you know, that, that paycheck every day and just say, okay, now I'm going to be a teacher and go and like take up 80% pay cut or whatever it is, 90% pay uh -huh. cut or, you know, so yeah, like keep going. <laughs> 90, 98% pay cut. So it's, it's a, it's a, you know, yeah. it's a pretty dramatic move. Um, I can, I'm not the only one who's done it though. And I know there are a lot of people who say, I'm going to go, I, I just had this example last week uh, with somebody who said, I want to go to med, you know, I want to go to med school, but I got to pay for it first. And so I want to go into banking and pay for it. And, and I think it's a little more common than you think. And I, I think what's common about that is that when people who do it for the money, just, it's not the reason, it's not the reason to be here, right? It's not the reason to be an investor. You should be an investor because you obsess about businesses and companies. And I can, I, I have some of that but I had more of this other thing. And, you know, I'm going to work hard no matter what I do, but I just, for me, it wasn't going to be about being in the model for 90, 90 hours a week. It was going to be about developing people. So you're, 
kind of coming out, it looks like you left the final, your final hedge fund job around 07. And mm -hmm. we had the, the fun, uh, great financial crisis. And you started kind of right at, at DePaul, kind of in the, right after the major crash. So is that accurate? That yeah, true? I started actually at the University of Illinois in 08, okay. in the crash. Um, in the crash. I wrote my first, yeah, I wrote my first class in an hour to be honest with you, like I knew exactly what, by the time I had done this, like I was ready. I knew exactly what, you know, I had gone through a finance concentration at Kellogg. I had gone through the CFA process at that point. Um, and I knew, you know, and I'd gone through banking training. So I, I think I understood at that point what I was going to get from formal education. And it also helped me understand what I, what thought I needed that was missing. And so I just sat down with a blank sheet of paper and said, if I had 10 weeks to teach somebody in 40 hours, this is what I would do. And I laid it out to me an hour. It was very clear to me. And I started pitching it to schools. But what were you, what was that? What was that course it was called? A hedge, yeah. It, yeah, it was actually called, it, I, I forget the final name we called it, but I think it was like intro to hedge funds, mm -hmm. um, where basically I was trying to explain if I was going to be a fundamental investor. Um, but I think there's a big gap between what's taught in school. And I understand why to some degree. And what's, and what's needed to be successful in the job. And it's modernization. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's not something I think that's easily taught in academia. And that's a fair point. So it became a practitioner course on sort of closing that gap uh, to help people become prepared for the real world. And so I launched it in 2008. I was paid, to, to your point, um, not a lot of money. Uh, but the quote was, and, and, you know, I'm very grateful, frankly, uh, there's a guy named Dave Eikenberry who's over at uh, UC Boulder now. And, you know, he said, look, we're going to pay you a little bit of money and basically take, you know, no investment on you. You're going to spend a little bit of time with us and it's no investment for you. And, uh, we're going to see what happens. And it was great. Um, I really found fulfillment in ways that I, I hadn't found in my first 10 years of my career. Yeah. And you were voted top professor in your master's of finance graduate program. So you clearly were passionate about it. Um, and you had the energy going into the classroom. <laughs> yep. So tell me like you were there for a good run. Was it, um, you, you ended up starting an investment banking academy. Yeah. In 2012, I launched, well, really 2011. I why, launched, not a, why not a hedge fund academy or a trading or an investor academy? To be honest with you, um, what I could get the, the school to do was investment banking. Uh, we had some very influential uh, board members, trustee members for the business, college of business, who uh, were part of uh, a, you know, a very successful investment bank who really wanted um, to have more graduates be prepared for higher paying jobs. That was the motivation. And so they said, like, like ours, and, and, and it was banking. And given what I, you know, the, the irony is, of course, I, you know, I, I thought it, I was not good at my job at M&A. Like I was learning, you know, kind of on the fly, like, you know, so now I was going to run this big program to, to train, uh, you know, for four years, we placed everybody into a, an investment bank on Wall Street um, for the four years that I, I built and ran that program. Wow. Um, but we were starting from nobody, you know, I, I say and one firm was coming, I said one to two firms, that's not fair. One to two firms were, were actively routinely coming to the to University of Illinois to recruit. And my job was to get it to be 15 firms. And so, you know, and to make sure that the firms knew that that talent that I talked about, that random, randomly distributed talent existed at the University of Illinois. And I just had to, you know, bring the two together and let, it, let things go from there. Interesting. One of the most famous users um, uh, in Wall Street Oasis history is called Illini Program. He's, a, he's an alum. Uh, I can't say who he is, obviously. 
<laughs> he was. Hopefully, uh, I know him. <laughs> you, you might. You might. I. I don't think he might have graduated before you. You were there, maybe or close, but he didn't. He didn't do banking. Um, did trading. So maybe you probably do know him. Um, so you're you're there for a good seven years. I'm running this. It's everything's great. And then what what happens that uh, point seventy two picks up their head and they say we need somebody to do this? Or you came across it? How did you hear about this? Was it always the uh, professional development role, or initially when you started at point seventy two? So what had happened was uh, I had actually had an alumni from Illinois, I think, connect with um, somebody at Point72 because I think Point72 was thinking about a developmental program for undergraduates uh, for the first time. And so um, what ended up happening was I was connected to at the, who, the former head of, of our global equities team uh, at the firm who flew down to Champaign-Urbana uh, in a prop plane into the cornfield and provided us with a great lecture uh, to our investment banking academy uh, group. And at the end of that, he said, do you have five minutes? And we talked uh, for about an hour over, you know, the, the Jimmy John sandwiches in the middle of a conference room. And by the end, uh, we had kind of come to an understanding that maybe I could be helpful on a consulting basis, at least, to, to think about how this program could work uh, for high potential undergraduates uh, to, to become directly, uh, to become direct long short analysts at the firm after a brief training period. It's just so interesting because we've seen that we've seen a lot of firms on the buy side kind of start opening up analyst programs. It sounds like point seventy two is a little bit ahead of the curve. I think it was a little bit more rare in fourteen. Was it fourteen? We were the first ones to do it. I think in two thousand fourteen. Um, yeah. You know, and we placed over you know on over hundred people now at the firm. You know, since we started the program with a retention rate in the in the in the eighty percent after after five years. That's it. so. You're saying out of people who start in the program 80% are still with you 5 years later? Um well I would of the total population we still have 80% of the people so I'm, you know not everybody started 5 years ago that's right, not, right, that's right. Not oh that's that's, <laughs> that's really good. So I guess it's probably very competitive. Well before we even get into that before we get into sure. all the dynamics um I kind of want to just finish your your story um a little bit in a sense of putting a putting a bow on it and then I definitely want to jump into a little more information about um everything you're doing there. So when you, when you kind of made that decision, it was, it sounds like it was the consultation kind of, they were trying to uh, pull you, pull you away. What kind of convinced you to go full-time eventually? Um, was it just exciting? You got excited about it? I, I mean, I, I had the chance to build the training program of my dreams at a firm that was going to resource me uh, to create it exactly how I would imagine it. And I, I can't think of a more compelling opportunity than to have someone like Steve Cohen, you know, decide that this is what he wants to build and, and really share the mission, personal development mission that I have uh, by opening his firm to like, let's be honest, it was a, it was an experiment. It was a project. Um, you know, who knew if I was, you know, I was, you know, at this point, I've been a professor for seven years and out of the industry. Who knew if I was going to be successful? And he was willing to take that 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 shot that initiative um do you think he was willing to take that shot because it was they had seen some young traders young some they they didn't think it was an age thing that was determining uh success or not i you know that's a good question i i don't know the answer to that um so it's hard for me to it's hard for me to speculate on but you you felt like you could train it because you had done it i did yeah i I absolutely felt convicted that I could take the investment banking Academy and the courses I was teaching and investing because the university had already started to say, what can you do for us on the buy side? You know, I think we'd come to that place. And so it was kind of at the same time. And I, I felt 
strongly that if you have great talent, um, the only question is how to how to turn that into someone productive quickly. And and, and so, but it's really dependent upon the people, you know, people's willingness and desire to to become great investors. I think it's kind of like great soup or great food. Like if you have great ingredients, you know, you you can kind of make a mistake in the recipe a little bit and still turn it out with a great, you know, yeah. a great product. Um, so looking back, I really. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Looking back, just do you feel like looking back over your career? I mean, you've now been kind of in the the, the teaching space now, and the at least, well, you're kind of a, a direct. You're more of a director, so you're not like in the classroom anymore. It sounds like, or are you? I am totally still. You're I still would. I would it. never. You're <laughs> not going to let go of that. It, okay. I'm not going to let it completely go. You're right. I don't. I don't do it like I used to, and I miss it. Um, I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and I still learn every time I'm there. So to be totally away from it, I think would actually not, it would make me less productive okay, in the long fair. run. And so looking back on your career to date, you know, the 10 years in hedge funds and then now I'm kind of the teaching, what, any thoughts on like the transitions you made? Do you feel like, oh, I wish I'd gone earlier, you know, I could have made, or do you feel like, hey, I could have, should have stayed a few more years? What are, what are your uh-huh. thoughts, you know, looking back? Um, yeah, like I, I, I think, um, I think I had to, learn what I'm teaching, you know, and, and so I, I think that it was a good investment of, of my time. I, I'm not going to say I enjoyed most of it because I, I didn't for me again, not sure I did. Um, but it was necessary. I still really enjoy investing. Um, so I'm, I am so grateful that I had that, that, that time uh, to, to learn it. Um, you know, I, I could I have accelerated it by a couple of years here and there, perhaps maybe on the on the teaching side, but but I don't regret. I, I think you know a couple times in my life I've I've really tried to make decisions that were risky, uh, for 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 the for the point that I wanted to be happy and I was willing to take the risk because I figured success would come if I was happy, uh, in what I was doing, and that that doesn't just apply to my career, by the way, but like it is. So I. I've kind of always been a believer that, you know, if you can be true to yourself and your best self, uh, you know, if you can bring your best self to work uh, in what you're doing, you're going to be to have the highest probability of success. And so I don't regret, you know, taking the time and looking back and saying what I wish I could do differently because I, I'm pretty happy where I am, you know, with what we've done. Sounds today. exciting. Yeah. It sounds, it sounds like you are. So that's good. Um, I think that's, we can all aspire to be doing something we love. I feel just as fortunate to be doing uh, Wall Street Oasis, like a dream. I was going to so, say, you must, yeah. <laughs> even with my <laughs> like, fake office behind me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. so, so I think uh, now that we've kind of gone through that, I, I really want to spend some time um, just some with some overarching questions, more about kind of trends and what you've seen and just to get your perspective on things. So I've noticed just over the last five, six, seven years, even just quant, 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 right? Like you need the technical skills and, you know, learn Python and learn machine, machine learning is a big, you know, buzzword now, AI, you know, all that stuff. Um, What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is the, is the academy, your, is the academy only focused on fundamentals and t- talk a little bit about what, who you're looking for and what the main focus is. Like, are you teaching any of that stuff or is it mostly more like a fundamental long short type of curriculum? I think the analysts of today have to be smart with data. And we do have some analysts that we do train for the purpose of being data scientists, actually a discretionary data scientist on team. Um, we, so we actually have a data, data science sort of academy sleeve. Um, I think that 
we, um, but, but every, every academy person has a fair amount of training on the data side. And when I say on the data side, what I, you know, I'm not saying we teach them 10,000 hours of Python because I don't think that's efficient or productive. Um, but I do think that if you put two people together in a room from the academy and you gave them a piece of, of data, you know, structured or unstructured, um, they would look at it in interesting and probably different ways. And I think that is the important and crucial monetization piece uh, that we try to teach in the academy that you don't, I don't think anybody can learn in school. Um, I think you need repetitions or, you know, what we call reps, right? You think you need reps on how to use structure, cut data uh, in interesting ways. And I think that's the intersection for us, um, you know, in the academy between between data and fundamentals. I mean, yes, we teach how fundamentals. Much, how course, much of what you're teaching is is like a pure um, technical skills of like being able to manipulate clean data and data analytics, you know, in quotes versus knowing how to uh, think creatively around the data like because i would think that you could teach the technical skills probably pretty easily in terms of like tools and python you know whatever it is pythons or coding languages but it might be harder to teach somebody's creativity or um or uh you know a different way to look at the data that might unlock some bait um some alpha so we actually we actually right and 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 but we that is actually the part that we do teach um and cool. and and so the firm has a tremendous amount of data market intelligence resource and people in that, in that team, you know, do an amazing job with the amount of resource and productivity that they have uh, with the tools. But, um, you know, on top of that, of course, they need to partner with people who can ask the questions and take the data and take it a step further and then a step further and a step, you know, and, and that's really the, the repetition that, that we try to teach. So the people who are interested in that side, would they be applying through the Academy still? They would be applying if they want to, you know, it's, it's a good question. If you want to, if you want to be really focused on product and on scalable product, you would apply to the MI data lead okay. uh, of the firm. Yeah. Otherwise it would be, you know, if you want to be a long short analyst uh, or work on a discretionary team, you would apply to the Academy. So let's talk about the Academy in terms of the different programs you offer. There's the summer internship. There's the two other programs, the, the, um, associate, it's called the associate program, the full-time associate and the experienced associate. Tell me a little bit about um, the differences of the two and the internship. And if, if you're able to share um, out of the internship, what are the offer rates looking like um, typically year over year? Sure. Um, so the Point 72 Academy was sort of the, the initial one was really geared at undergraduates. Um, maybe I'll take you through a brief history to sort of get to all these um, you know, get, get, get to all those sort of the questions. Um, the Point 72 Academy offering started in 2015 with largely as an undergraduate focus. Um, you know, at that time, I think we had 400 applicants and, and we had 10 seats and, you know, our graduation rate at, at that point, to be honest, was, was I think 70%. So it was, to me, that's not great. Our overall, you know, today that we are on an average of 91% as we have evolved who we've hired and how we train people. Um, I think, you know, we have 16,000 applications this year. When you call it graduation, mm -hmm. you mean, um, they've gone through the 10 month program and they, they don't drop out or they, they're given a full-time offer after or something. Is that what you mean by graduate? Right. So yeah, I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll back up. So, so the, yeah, the, the, the regular program or the, the point 72 Academy is a 10 month program where we really spend the first 10 weeks in an MBA boot camp, if you will, like learning the skills, the disaggregated skills, 
and then we necessary to be successful literally on the job. And then we spend the next, you know, four or five months combining those skills in a way that gives people repetitions around what it's like to be an investor on a team. And so a lot of paper uh, trading, a lot of paper trading and stuff there or no, there is, there is a mock uh, section. Um, but no, obviously we, we do not, um, you know, there's no, we would never put anybody like that in front of a, you know, anything beyond that. Yeah. Um, so we really teach a lot of fundamental skills, you know, compliance, um, you know, how to handle data, how to host an interview, how to develop a thesis, uh, really every aspect of being a great, you know, and compliant investor. And then, um, you know, we just give them repetition after repetition until we feel they're ready to, to do some rotations on teams. Um, and then they complete a couple of rotations where we hope there's a mutual match and then placement uh, of, of the associate onto an analyst, you know, promoted to analyst uh, role. Yep. Uh, so in this case, there is a promotion because there is a distinct difference in, in responsibility and, and role. Um, the Experienced Academy program is for those who have well, done before, something before. Yeah, before mm-hmm. you go to the experience. So the full-time, it's people that have just graduated. Like, is there, is it, does it always start in, I don't know, September or July, August? Is it, or is it ongoing, just a rolling 10-month program? We have three intake dates per year uh, around the world. And we, um, it's not, so they're, they're a blend. And so you could be, um, you know, an undergraduate, you could be an MBA graduate, you could be, uh, we really like to hire veterans who, who have come back and gotten a graduate degree. So they may not have civil work, you know, civilian work experience. Um, or they may come from banking or be a doctor or work, have worked, we've hired people from the White House. Um, you know, we, 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 uh, we really, as long as they haven't had a lot, you know, really any buy side experience, we consider them to be a good candidate for the academy or we can then teach them the 0.72 way of, of investing. Got it. Okay. And then, so that's basically a non-guaranteed offer, but it's an offer for 10 months, almost a year. They get almost a year to work with you and go through that program. It's considered like an educational stuff where are they, are they, are they paying you? Are you guys paying them? How is it? How is it? How is that? Oh, it is a paid, it is a paid, it is a paid opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, it is highly competitive. Um, you can compare it to any high banking, high paying wall street job in the world. Um, so are you guys just losing money? Like you're just funding it basically just because it's a good uh, pool of talent for you guys, because they're not actually putting any money to work. Right. That's so interesting you say that. I think it's a wonderful investment. Um, oh, no, I, I'm, saying, investment. I'm saying direct, direct, like those years that you're training them, they're obviously not putting any money to work. They're not making any alpha for you guys. But obviously, yes, it's if, if you're doing it. Yeah. So the, the thought process is we're going to invest heavily here in this program um, and get a bunch of great investors under, under our umbrella, right? So. Well, we are, yeah, we have a 91%, um, as I said, a 91% placement rate. Like let's let's not mince words about graduation versus play. Like ninety one percent of the people who who enter the program uh, to date in six years now that we you know we've had it two thousand twenty one so six years yeah we've had we've had ninety one percent placement. Um, not everybody chooses to go into long short from that. Almost everybody does. But for example, we have a ventures we have a ventures group, and some people have chosen to to go to the ventures team uh, or the macro team. Or, you know, we have never placed anybody in Cubist or the, like the super quantitative, you know, sides of it because they really look for a slightly different kind of candidate. Um, 
And as I said before, yeah, our retention rate, uh, you know, I feel very, very, you know, fortunate about our retention rate, but I think the firm has worked really hard to solidify the fact that, you know, we are the top development brand in the hedge fund space and we will continue to work with analysts to develop them. And I think that's compelling. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Then yeah, 91% is a great, um, great offer rate. So tell me a little bit about just who you look for, how to be competitive for this. Cause I think that's the program that the most of the listeners are going to be interested in. I hope, I hope they are. <laughs> how do they, how do they stand out in these, in these applications? What are you forcing them to do? Is this, is this a lot of a higher view stuff that they're used to at the big banks? Are you, you know, doing <laughs> a bunch of math modeling tests? What, what do they, what are they forced to do? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, like, we think this opportunity is, is unique uh, still in the industry and, and we, but, but our process probably sounds similar to a lot of the wall street processes out there. And so, you know, because we do have, you know, over, over 15, 16,000 applications, this year was over 16,000, you know, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, because I, I can respect the fact that the higher V process is, is, you know, people roll their eyes at that a little bit. Um, I, I think we, we try to, you know, do what we can about, you know, we understand, I, I'll say this directly to listeners, like I understand the higher V process cannot always bring forth personality and that personality in terms of desired of wanting to be an investor, there are things about you that are unique and special that I care about. And I understand that's not always easy to convey in a higher view. And so that's not the intention. Um, you know, the intention is to truly find, to answer your question, people who want to do this, uh, people who know they love it. And even talk about how do I know I love this if I've never done it, which I would think is a good question, right? Even for those, like, I didn't have any money to invest. Even if I had known I had wanted to be an investor, it's not like I could have opened up a, a you know, an account and, and traded. And then I would make the argument that, you know, a paper account does not feel the same when you're losing money as a real account. And you're laughing because you know I'm right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think... Uh, depending on who you are and what you want. So if you want to go into market intelligence, you know, there's a track for you. If you're somebody who's new to finance, uh, you know, we're going to talk about what we look for from, from our, you know, fundamental academy. The experienced academy, again, is the fundamental academy, but for those who have experience, so it's a little bit more advanced uh, or accelerated. But we're going to, you know, at that, you know, there'll be a track for them. So that people who have been in banking for, you know, a year or two or whatnot. Can, we, can I stop there and talk a little bit about that transition? Because we have a lot of bankers listening to uh, who maybe in buy side. So like, is there, um, you know, traditionally it's very common for hedge funds to pull from the investment banking ranks. So it's a little bit, obviously you guys were first to kind of start pulling from the, uh, under straight from out of undergrad and putting them through this more rigorous, longer time frame. But, um, are you telling me that you're, you're recruiting bankers and they're not trading within three months, Like they're not actually doing anything. They're just going through this training for that long. Oh, uh, that's right. Well, it's for eight months. Uh, so they, they do go through an eight month training program. So why do we do this? Yeah. Um, we have found over time that banking has changed. I have found that banking has changed. I trained for bank, you know, I trained undergraduates for banking for, for years. And I think these days, more than ever, it's become more transactional. It's become uh, more templated. And I think the investing role has, so I think there's been like this sort of this, this, gradual and maybe not so gradual uh, divide and gap that's occurred between what it takes to be a successful long short analyst and what it takes to be a successful analyst at an investment bank. And this notion of monetization and being able to convert your work into actionable ideas, I think it's unfair to assume that somebody who's been in a banking 
position can just kind of wake up and, and generate stock ideas. And, and I think that's something that should be taken seriously and respected. There is a transition that's necessary. I mean, how do you know how to short a stock based on, you know, working on a, on an M&A deal or a pitch book? Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. And I, and I think, as I said, this is, we are the number one development firm and it is because of the insights we've generated over the years that we understand, like, you need a minute to kind of understand, you know, to understand like what makes a good short opportunity. Yeah. Even out of a bank. Who's and, number two. <laughs> I haven't found number two. Let me, you let me know who number two who, is. No, um, when I say who's number, who, who, comes close in terms of the number of months that you guys are training uh, experienced analysts or do, do all of them kind of start? Is it more of an apprenticeship uh, model where they're giving them just not a lot of um, P&L? That's my understanding. Um, I wouldn't know. Um, and certainly where I, when I worked at other firms, now this brand is a long time ago, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't around. Um, you feel like other hedge funds, large hedge funds are following this model and starting to, to, to do more straight out undergrad and longer training programs for, for analysts or no? Um, I think that's that's something that I have heard is is coming about, um, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 I think that's good for the industry. Um, I think it's good for the industry to have more opportunities for for young people. As I said before, talent is randomly distributed, and you know, I I would love for young people to have more opportunities uh, as they come, you know, out of college or or into the working world. And you know, we can't hire everybody, and you know, I think I think it's I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I welcome I welcome that. Um, you know, and I, I think we should all kind of make sure that we do a better, I think we need to do a better job of really explaining what this industry is and not making assumptions about people being able to jump into investing without proper, proper understanding really of, of what it means to be a great investor. Let's talk a little bit now about the summer internship and operates this, this, the summer internship typically for undergraduates kind of, I assume in their junior summer or something like that. And you give a, an offer rate as well on that. Mm, yeah. So um, you know, we, we also have, as I said before, uh, you know, focused on, on MBA. We, we do focus a little bit on MBA. So the, you know, MBA internship as well. So, so, but it is meant for, for school year. Um, typically we, we are this year, uh, hosting, uh, other opportunities, you know, throughout the school year, given that it's remote, it's a little bit easier to kind of, you know, provide other, other options as well. But, um, and you know, happy to direct people to Point Seventy Two's website on the career opportunities there. Is the summer internship? Are they like graduating into the program? Um, so they go from like summer internship to a ten month training, or is it if they do the summer internship, it's more expedited, or how does that work? Yeah, well, we source a lot of our full time uh, program members, particularly out of undergrad, directly from the internship. So they would they would graduate, and the following year they would after the 10, 10 week internship. Uh, they would join the firm uh, full time as, and we have multiple start dates, as I said. So there's not like, you know, this one start date where if you graduate, you know, it's not, it's not a, like a, a machine. It's it's really flexible because, you know, people graduate at different times of the year. And frankly, if I'm honest, the, the PMs need hiring at more than one time a year. So, you know, it works for both of us. Um, our offer rates vary. I've, you know, it's, I would say it tends to be from the mid fifties to the low 80% in different years. Again, we've done this for six years. So, um, you know, it, it, it does, it does vary. I never, I, I want to make this really clear. We never overhire for our intern program. Every time we have an intern, it is my hope. Um, and frankly, my expectation that they will receive a full-time offer. And so, but I think people should use the internship for what I think it was meant to be. And I wouldn't know because internships didn't exist in, in you know, back, back in my day, um, which is that sometimes I think people figure out this is not what they want to do. And I have worked with many undergraduates who are honest with me about that by the end of the summer to help place them elsewhere. 
And I think, I think a good employer should, should really be a good partner to their employee and, and, and make sure that they're on the right career path that's right for them, even if it's not here. We have also placed people out of the internship into other roles in the firm um, because we really do want to, want to retain everybody. And, and as I said, I have never overhired. Fair. So I think in terms of um, what else am I missing? What else should, should the, the listeners know about just the program itself? I mean, that it, it sounds fairly, uh, fairly intense. Is it, you know, crazy hours during the training? Is it hours like, is it ramped where training's more like 60 hours a week and they get on when they're actually become a full-time <laughs> analyst, they're doing more like 80 in stressing over the markets or what's the, what's the ramp up look like? Well, fire drills are interesting, I think. And, you know, the fire drill method, like mentality doesn't, isn't the same thing here, right? That's a big difference is, is yes, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And if you love what this is, it doesn't feel like work. And if I've built a good community around the class, then it should feel fun. Um, I'll take your, your question in two parts. The first part, the 10 week MBA, mini MBA, it's a lot of work the way school can be a lot of work for hard classes. Um, because that's really what it is. It is assignments, it is homework, it is, it is tests. Like everybody kind of, if you've ever heard about our infamous accounting test, like, yes, I have an accounting test. Yes, you need to pass it. Um, almost everybody does. And frankly, if you don't, it probably, I mean, in my experience, 100% of the time, it's because you don't want to do it. It's not because you can't do it. Um, I think the instructors that we have are phenomenal. Uh, they're some of the best in the world. And, and so it's, it's in my, I mean, we, again, with a 9%, you know, rate that hasn't grad, you know, that hasn't placed at the firm, you can imagine like about one out of every 10 people decide, yeah, maybe I really don't like this. And most of the time they have an intern with us, which is a big tell to that. So um, after the 10 weeks, uh, when you start to really get into coverage and companies and pitching and events, like you're, you're going to learn what a fire drill is, which looks a lot like earning. Um, occasionally you have a deal announced on one of your names. So, you know, that, that, that can be a fire drill, but it is not the same, you know, there goes your weekend at five o'clock on a Friday. That doesn't, that doesn't happen here. I, I need people to sleep. Actually. I need people to have a quiet time. You know, we need to have events with people. We have an incredible community at point 72 uh, with affinity groups and with um, you know, community matters. And it is very important to us that people bring their best selves to work every day so that, yeah, we get the most out of you. Like let's like, we don't just do this to be nice. We do this because we want you to be productive. What would you say to people who are applying, who are just nervous about just the overall trajectory of, of the industry um, overall, as you know, hedge funds left and right have been falling by the wayside? What would you say to those people? Would you, ha would you say, oh, don't worry about it because those hedge funds are terrible? Or would you say there is a, a, <laughs> a shift of more you know, passive investment versus active, active management? Well, uh, that's a good question. I, 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 would, I would never you know, say anything like, you know, don't, don't worry. I think if it's a worry, it's, it's legitimate. Um, I think we should talk about why it could be a worry. It could be a worry because, uh, you know, ever since decimalization happened in the market, you know, markets have become more efficient. Uh, it's a worry because there's a lot of passive money out there. Um, a couple of responses to that I have are number one, you want to be at a firm that invests in you no matter what, and that invests in itself to make sure that it stays on top over time. And point 72 has a track record of success. And whether it's at our firm or a different firm, any advice I would give to anybody who wants to be an investor is be an investor. Just be a really good one. I think the, 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 there are still people who earn great returns in this industry, but it is harder than it used to be. And so you need the training to be great. There are more professionals in the market than there used to be. And so you need to find a firm that invests in you 
and frankly, find a mentor that invests in you. Um, I'm sure so many of your, of your listeners have, you know, thought about mentors in their careers to kind of get where they are. And, and that shouldn't stop in college or in, you know, in, in your first job, like, you, you know, we have mentorship programs at Point72 because I, I respect the fact that you need a community. This is a tough job yeah. and you need a community to be successful. Um, and so, I, you know, my, my response is the market is tougher. You have to be better than you used to have. I think, I, you know, I don't know how I would do today. Uh, you know, it went back when I was there, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but I think it's my burden to train people to be successful. And I think our firm, I know our firm has been successful. Uh, and maintain that. But I would say to our invest, you know, to, to your young, you know, future investors out there, um, you know, don't give up on that dream. If that's what you want to do, just make sure you find the firm that's willing to invest in you. And as I said, invest in itself so that, um, you know, it doesn't fall by the wayside and become a victim. You know, Steve always says, uh, Steve Cohen always says, you know, you have to change or die. And, and I think that's true. Um, and I think he's shown in our firm that, that he's continued to do that. Uh, as one example, but you know, there, there are other examples too. It's not, this is not the, the sure. you know, meant to just, just sell ourselves. Like I'd say that to anybody. Yeah. Fair. So Jamie, any, uh, before we call it, I've kept you for much longer than expected because it was an interesting, um, interesting kind of dive into, into the, yeah, I, I don't know much about this space. So it's, it's more uh, educational for myself as well. So anything else before we call it? any other final words of wisdom or anything you want to leave the listeners with? Well, I hope that, you know, if it, I think that, if you have an interest in this industry, um, then we owe it to you to educate you on what this industry, what the long short hedge fund industry is. And if you're interested in that, you know, I hope that they would take advantage of the, of the links that you're going to post about our firm or about other firms and that um, the education is there for you if, if you want it. And, you know, we invite, you know, smart, hardworking, talented people from everywhere uh, to consider it. One last thing I forgot to ask you, thank you for the final words, but um, except you said 16,000 people apply. So I want to let people know it's very competitive. So around how big is the class um, for this upcoming year or for, for let's say the next, for that 16,000 pool, how many people would you? Uh, we'll probably hire 40 to 50, but we will also put people into, you know, the, the firm is, you know, I'm, I'm going to get this number wrong. It's about 1500 at this point. So we do, you know, take some of this pool and have them consider for other roles as well. But yes, it is, it is competitive. Mm -hmm, for sure. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking all this time and uh, sharing sharing your story and sharing the the uh, insight into the programs over there. You're welcome. And I, I was just told it was 1600. So I, I already, you know, <laughs> we're growing faster than I realized. <laughs> but thank you so much. That's good. I thanks really so much. The time. And thanks to you, my listeners at Wall Street Oasis. If you have any suggestions whatsoever, please don't hesitate to send them my way. Patrick at wallstreetoasis.com. Until next time.